0: Hey, we're back. This is Joe and TJ from the Schoolhouse 302, and you're listening to our Focus Ed podcast. Focus Ed is your educational leadership podcast. In every episode, it's our mission to focus on one aspect of teaching and leading in school so that you can make progress in your district, school, or classroom with even more knowledge Better understanding and a clear
1: direction on what to do next for your students and staff. In each show, we ask an expert guest to join us and we dissect their work and tons of other information about leading better and growing faster in schools. We're only doing 14 episodes per school year and we hope you'll listen to all 14. The guest list is incredible. Don't miss a single show and do us a favor please like, share, and follow. Focus Ed on SoundCloud, iTunes, and our website, theschoolhouse302.com. And now for another episode of Focus Ed. Each
0: episode of Focus Ed, we invite expert guests to join us. In this episode, we have Horatio Sanchez with a focus on overcoming the impact of poverty in schools, specifically what teachers and leaders can do to build an environment that promotes resiliency. Horatio, thank you so much for being with us here today. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. TJ, why don't you tell our audience a bit more about Horatio?
1: Will do, Joe. Horatio Sanchez is a highly sought-after speaker and educational consultant helping schools learn to apply neuroscience to improve educational outcomes. He presents on diverse topics such as overcoming the impact of poverty, improving school climate, engaging in brain-based instruction, and addressing issues related to implicit bias. He is recognized as one of the nation's leading authorities on resiliency and applied brain research. Horatio has been a teacher, administrator, cl- clinician, mental health director, and consultant to school districts across the United States. He sits on True Health Initiative Council of Directors, a coalition of more than 250 world renowned health experts committed to educating on proven principles of lifestyle as medicine. He is the author of the best selling book, The Education Revolution, which applies brain science to improve instruction behaviors and climate. In his new book, The Poverty Problem, explains how education can promote resilience and counter poverty's impact on brain development and functioning, which is what we're going to talk about here at the beginning of the show. Okay, Horatio, we want to jump right in. Your book, The Poverty Problem, addresses the fact that poverty and resiliency are so closely related that they can predict one another. With that said, and that in mind, you address the need for evidence-based teaching practices, along with helping students to learn to be more resilient in schools. We want to start there. This concept of if in effective instruction and promoting resiliency in schools in terms of their impact on poverty, what does that look like if we're going to put that into practice?
2: Well, I think it starts to look at how the brain really learns in many ways. One of the things we started understanding for kids in poverty is that you could almost predict certain areas of deficit. For example, one of the places that is impacted by poverty is your prefrontal cortex, which has a lot to do with formal learning and decision-making. Another place that's impacted is your hippocampus, which has to do with short-term memory. There's a system between the prefrontal cortex and the hippocampus in which helps us develop long-term memory. And when you impact poverty impacts the prefrontal cortex and the hippocampus, one of the things we can predict with good, good predictability is that many kids coming out of poverty are going to have issues with memorization and learning. Since education right now has almost omitted repetition from education because we, we started thinking it was a bad word, repetition, and we started having people really focus on higher level thinking, for a lot of kids coming from poverty, the inability to remember things is at one of the core things that they're struggling with as the curriculum gets more advanced. So one of the things we try to help teachers understand is how does the brain develop short-term memory and long-term memory quicker and an efficient way to do this in order that a person's brain can maximize it. Let me give you an example. We now know that if you can maximize the amount of sensory input at the point of something being learned, it seems to increase the probability that it will be recorded, remembered long-term. The key there is to do both, to have some form of exercise or activity that has multiple senses impacted at the same time and provide enough repetition during that core, core period of time while you're doing that section of learning so both things occur. The brain requires some degree of repetition For kids that don't do homework and don't go home and study, you've got to have enough of in class. And if you maximize sensory input, the chances of it being recorded and remembered long term will be maximized. So those are some of the things we wanted to think about because we know language is going to be a deficit. We know memory is going to be a deficit. You can almost assume that for a high percentage of kids in poverty. Ratio. if we could go down this road a little more
0: and identify some of those sensory inputs, some of the repetition, just very practically speaking, our audience is primarily educators, like still in the classroom or administrators, so it could help them. I'm thinking when you describe that we're teaching a lesson, we have something visual representing what we're teaching, having the students repeat it. But if we have other sensory inputs, what are some other examples that you can
2: think of that would reinforce what they're specifically learning? One of the things that's really interesting, movement actually helps both learning a concept but also recalling information. So oftentimes one of the things we train teachers to do is attach some kind of visual to some type of movement to some form of information. That's a grouping. There are lots of other types of ways you can do that. You can also do some form of rhythmic pattern because that seems to also help. So it's, it's just clustering those things together and, and having them occur at the same time. And, and that seems to be the key, having them occur at the same time because all our sensory pathways have a different route to the brain and all of them have their, almost their own mechanisms of recording. And if we can tap on that, we can actually help people who have memory deficits to actually increase their capacity.
1: Would you also include music in that? Is there anything with the sensory input and remembering that would be associated with music that our audience might I put to.
2: music I put music in a lot and and not don't think about music in relation to some of the early stuff you heard about music. It's not that at all listening to music doesn't make you smarter and that's that was garbage i it's it, what we now know from fairly long longitudinal long, well done studies is two things for kids in poverty, when they're very young, we're talking about before going to school to preschool. it seems that. If they can actually engage in musical activities, that's movement while doing language, while having it associated to a rhythmic pattern, seems to increase gray matter in the prefrontal cortex, which is a way of combating the gray matter that's consistently lost in kids in in poverty. We now know that most kids in poverty have some issue of gray matter deficit. We now know that kids right above the poverty line seem to average 4% to 6%, under the poverty line almost 10%, and as destitution increases, the loss in gray matter increases. Gray matter is predictive of how well a region will function. So music activities allow kids to actually change the, the, the level of gray matter to increase capacity. The sad thing is after those early years, it doesn't seem that that kind of just loose activities doesn't regain gray matter anymore. After that, it seems that kids have to engage in formal learning and repetition of music in a way that they practice it almost on a daily basis. And we're talking almost like an hour a day, five days a week, and that kind of repetition will give them the increase in gray matter and will help in a lot of other cognitive functions. So the older they get, the more formal it has to get. But from kindergarten backwards, if they can get them early enough, oftentimes you can combat it. And that's more music activities in the home by the parents and more done by preschool teachers and kindergarten teachers, especially in high poverty areas.
0: It's fascinating, Horatia. You just made me think. Also, I have a granddaughter two years old, but she loves baby shark, which is just this really silly tune, but does incorporate baby shark, mommy shark, daddy shark, grandpa shark with physical movement. And she knows, like, what grandma shark versus daddy shark the movements are vastly different in the song and she's going around singing all this as you're describing it I even and my wife who's a first grade teacher I see it in her lessons but I, I know also as we go up the grade level particularly in the upper grades in high school um, this almost may become non-existent um, what's some of the ways you find are the best way is to put this into practice um, at really any grade level but primarily some of those grade levels where they may see this as maybe even, I hate to say it, but like a waste of time. I got to cover the curriculum, particularly in those upper
2: upper grade levels. Well, I train teachers across the country and I teach them a lot of concepts. And many times when I teach them a really advanced concept, I incorporate movement. And what ends up happening is modeling is a natural form of instruction to the brain. And when people see it done, feel its impact and know it and and actually validate it for themselves, this concept of this is a kindergarten or a elementary school kind of thing goes away because I can show them how quickly they grasp a very advanced concept by incorporating movement, even if it's movement of a group that I bring up on the stage. Because even if a group on the stage does the movement, what we know about the way our brains work in relation to empathy is that people actually mirror the movements anyway. So the audience still get the movement. And one of the things we show them is that movement helps the brain acquire abstract concepts. It's called embodied cognition if you wanna formally look at it. But the reality is the brain has always incorporated body movements to help us understand concepts, but it does it subconsciously So a lot of healthy brains does it anyway. So what we're saying, if this is the brain, how it does comprehension of abstract concepts naturally, you can enhance that by actually incorporating. So I teach things like temperament through movement. I teach how the brain works in relation to the hippocampus and amygdala to adults via movement. And then I show them and I explain the science and I show them how easily they comprehended it. And I think that's important because What we know about learning a new concept is this. If you show the concept done well, repeatedly, to a high level, teachers with capacity will take it on. One of the things I see that that teachers struggle with is people come in, talk about teaching concepts, but don't model it. They talk about it. (laughs) So if you can model it, it makes a big difference. So I would say that's the biggest plus. And teachers really do enjoy teaching that's more engaging. And that is the same thing we're trying to get them to do. And the way to do that is to go out there and show it to them and model it to them so they see it done and have the impact felt.
1: Thank you for that. That's important for all of us who do professional development and, and adult learners as well. I want to also talk about resilience and resiliency and promoting that in schools. And you talked about, you talk about protective factors. Can you say more about that for our audience?
2: In the body of research that was resiliency, because resiliency isn't a study, it's a body of research that gathered things that seemed to insulate people from the risk in their life. And as those things were discovered, you ended up with a list of things that if people acquire, seem to help them overcome whatever presenting problems. So if you understand resiliency theory correctly, it basically states that if you have risk in your life, you need enough protectives to offset the scale. Um, Protective factors fall into three categories. Some you're born with, some you can acquire, and what you got them, you got them, and some you can acquire and lose. But we found out that there are some protective factors that could be easily promoted in schools. And if you identify those things for, for schools, and have them figure out ways to infuse it into just their everyday existence, then kids could get them. There's only one academic protect, protective factor that's reading. Um, many of the other protective factors come out in other ways. So, we like truly believing that you have a competency is a protective factor. Being liked by your peers, not just people who are like you, but peers, is a protective factor. Being likable to a, a wide range of adults is a protective factor. So, we teach those things and have them in, in the school in a way that those things can be infused. And so, you, you pick some protective factors that seem to be naturally able to be um, incorporated into school activities, and you design it in a way where kids are taught and they practice skill sets, concrete skills. That increase the probability of those things occurring. So, in many ways, we're actually teaching kids how does the brain develop the ability for us to get along so it's concrete for them, and, and then teaching them things like emotional control abilities so you can get along and maintain relationships. So those are things we start talking about. In the book, we saw me talk about how much the emphasis for teachers to for teachers who are teaching kids from poverty how much their nonverbals become so essential because when you talk about empathy, empathy is a hardwired system that occurs at a, at a pre-attentional level. That means we observe it even though we don't know we're observing it and it impacts us the same way. One of the things we started noticing for kids from poverty is that they tend to observe negative cueing more than they observe positive cueing. Negative cueing actually impacts the brain in a negative way chemically. And positive cueing increases the brain's capacity. The fact that you miss it when it's occurring around you is significant. However, in schools where teachers are more intentional in controlling their nonverbal cueing, especially with kids coming from poverty, we found that there is a higher probability that the the students start to notice in positive cueing and then start mirroring positive cueing. So it's that kind of things. You needed it to be consistent and across the board rather than randomized.
0: Grace, you're very powerful. I've never heard that before about the negative queuing um, and the way the effects of poverty has on students and what they start listening to, hearing more. Fascinating. I want to go into this idea of the student experience more. Um, we've talked about temperament. you've talked about like a lot of the nonverbal. If you were going to improve
2: the student experience in schools,
0: what would you want to see done?
2: Um, someone asked me the other day, if I was to create a school for kids of concentrated poverty, what would I do today? And I told them, one, I would try to make every aspect of the school experiential. So for example, for me, lunch should not be lunch. Lunch should be an experience in which you serve healthy foods, they learn about the foods and they start to create good healthy habits. That Jim is not just Jim, Jim is talking about dietary and mind control pro- processes and abilities that they can become lifetime practices. That we would take on this whole issue of social and emotional learning to a place where they truly understand how does the brain develop relationships What happens with the brain sees and develops relationship with people who don't look and act like you, so you can increase capacity. And those not only are lessons learned, but they're practiced on a regular basis. And that that language would be a foundational thing, not only read, but spoken and written emphasis on language. And and an unusual thing that I would say is that people think would be kind of weird is that I would have all my schools do at least two languages because it seems like an oxymoron, you're like, well, they can't do one language well. Well, we found out that infusing more than one language as early as possible increases language capacity. And one of the other things I would do is I would have all kids take on music training because regardless of how proficient they get at it, the process of engaging it will do two things. It seems to increase some of the structures that are impacted as long as they practice on a regular basis. But another thing that's interesting is music training seems to restore auditory processing loss. Let me explain that. We found that a lot of kids coming out of poverty lose the ability to pick up discrete sounds related to language that they've been exposed to. The inability to pick up those discrete sounds impacts pronunciation, um, spelling, reading long term but they found out that kids from poverty who took on music and practiced long enough, it seemed to restore auditory processing. And then they looked at that long longitudinal and 20 and 30 years later, they found out these kids capacity that was restored at middle school maintained. So I'm talking about that level of exposure to music training on a really consistent basis. And that's what I'll infuse in my school to make it a saturated process from language to music to social engagement, to eating, to exercise, the holistic child in a very neuroscience kind of foundation.
1: Those are wonderful ideas. Experiential learning is is a fantastic tool. I really like what you're saying about the cafeteria, just honoring the arts as well, the languages, the arts, and how those things are as important, if not more than what we call the core. So really appreciate it's resonating with me. And I know it's resonating with a lot of folks on the call. I want to ask you a question about your favorite educational resources for teaching and learning. Now we know your book, the education revolution and the poverty problem. And let me tell you what's going on right now. Everybody on this call has those two books in their cart on Amazon. And if they don't win them, they're going to press buy now, but is there another thing people should put in their carts, another book or resource that you say, this is something that everybody has to have.
2: I'm the worst person to ask that question to. I am a one trick pony. I read research articles all the time. That's pretty much what I read because of the nature of neuroscience and its movements. So if you ask me researchers, I'll, I'll list them off the top of my head. I, I, if you want to learn about how the body actually helps you learn concepts, go to Niedenthal. If you want to learn how kids' auditory processing actually increases and works from infancy forward, go to Cruel. If you want to look at some of the best research on poverty's impact on the brain, go to um, Noble. If you want to look at the impact of stress on neurogenesis and what it happens to kids coming from stressful environment, go to gruel. And by the way, all those researchers are female. I just want to note that because in the field of science, that's a big deal to me. And so that's what I do. I read researchers, and that's I'm sorry, that's that's what I do. And so if you ask me for other people, I read. When I read books, I read them for fun. So if you want to read what I read for fun, that's definitely the different kind of thing. But it will not be neuroscience. I, neuroscience, I do research, and then everything else I do, I read for fun. No, that's that's great, and we'll
0: make sure we list those, Horatio. And it's a good point because. You know, there are a lot of social scientists out there. There are a lot of individuals publishing work, diving into the research and separating what is perceived truth versus fact and what's emerging, cutting edge. I think there should be more of a blend of the research in our decision making as educational leaders. So we'll make reference to those. We may have to email you though. I you went through those kind of quick, so just to make sure we get them get them right. But we appreciate that. Um, this is a, a little tricky. You, you've mentioned about going around to different schools, obviously trying to make the biggest impact in teaching and learning you can. You know, for you to start seeing the success of what you what you teach, the the idea of poverty in schools, how it affects learning. And what would you like to see happen in the next three to five years to make to allow you to know that you're really starting to make an impact with your work?
2: Well, I would think some forms of instruction will actually change in the classroom. I would see teachers actually using some of the brain-based strategies that we we put in the book that we said, okay. This is the best way to teach it. And, and by the way, some of the times when I teach this to, to teachers, I actually go in and just do a model lesson. I take a lesson right from the standard curriculum and teach it. This way they can see a lesson done in the way it is. That's one thing. I actually really think that schools need to put into their curriculum two things that, that are, are critical. One is understanding the role and the importance of empathy and how empathy occurs in the brain because next to procreation, empathy is one of the most important things. Empathy has been dropping for kids who are healthy for the last 30 years. For kids in poverty, it's dropping even more. And empathy is the foundation of our ability to socially engage with one another. That is critical. The next thing is, as we infuse technology in schools, we need to also teach students what technology does to the brain and some simple strategies to counteract that so you're not saying throw technology out but you're saying learn to live better with technology for example your brain really does require while you're awake during some part of your day to be unplugged for at least an hour your brain doesn't doesn't like that whole thing you need to be able to have certain things that you engage in as a single task activity what kids are doing now are multitasking with everything. The brain really needs to have some things you engage with that's single task. Let me give you an example. If you go jogging for a half an hour, it's single task. If you go jogging with hel- headphones, it's not single task. Certain things that you do singly should, make, should be done by itself without multitasking. And I think th- that, is, that becomes kind of another critical kind of thing kids can learn. So there are things you can do. To, to help your brain, to protect your brain. And, and those are important kinds of things. So I think since you have technology, you should have a technology training capacity where you say, technology is great. Here's the impact that technology is currently having on the brain with the loss of focus and things like that. And give kids simple focus tests. And then if they're failing them, have them do some focus exercises to regain that. And it can be regained pretty quickly if you do the exercises correctly. So we train kids in all those things, being unplugged, doing some focus exercises, maintaining single task activities throughout their life to counteract some of the impacts of of technology because technology is part of our educational system. It's not gonna go away, but we need to balance that with an understanding of how to protect their brains while they engage with technology. And those two areas, the social capacity and issues of empathy being lost, and its importance to our society and to the world and how to effectively have technology in our lives without it negatively impacting our brain because the long-term issue with technology is an increase in dementia and that's important for them to consider because we're living longer, more people are having it and one of the reasons the spike is multitasking with technology.
1: It's so critical that you bring that up too, because in a lot of circles, the multitasking is seen as as a positive thing and and as a skill. And and here we are talking about trying to limit that to preserve your brain and your brain's function. So it's, it's,
2: you want to know the truth about it about for probably 25 years, I told people 0.02% of the world's population is capable of multitasking. The last research, it's up to maybe 2%. But still, 2% of the world means that everyone should say that, look at that figure, 2% of the world is capable of doing it, should mean it ain't you. So that's the way you should look at it, instead of, it's me right here, you know. Most of us can't do it, we delude ourselves, and the only reason we delude ourselves is because the brain actually switches in milliseconds, and we're unable to notice the drop in performance.
1: Then we're not actually doing anything very well.
2: No. And when you multitask, both
1: things you do usually suffer. So a lot of times we ask this question, which is, what is your next book that you want to write? Or what is another book that you think someone else should write that you want to read? But since you mentioned about books and the research, I would add a layer to to say, is there research that's not being done or that needs to be bolstered that you think needs to be conducted so that we know more?
2: Okay. Usually, I would I often t- people ask me that in the past, and I always tell them in the direction the research is going to take me. Actually, I have started writing another book already because it was something I train on, and people have been requesting. So, I'm, my next book might be on the neuroscience of leadership because we do a lot of work with understanding how how to lead systems and how to implement systems change. Because a lot of the training that principals and superintendents are getting don't have any understanding of how do I actually implement change and how do I actually lead people? And neuroscience is doing a lot of work in that area. So that might be the area that I'm in. So I'm currently writing that, but who knows, the research might take me in another direction.
1: Well, this has been fantastic. We really appreciate your time. There's been a lot of wisdom shared, a lot of nuggets, a lot of things that people can put into practice right away. Is there anything else that you would like to add or share or request of of the audience today?
2: Uh, No, no. You just got to click on those two books and you'll be fine.
1: That's great. Click on the two books. If you're on the call, you might might win one. And again, you heard it here on Focus Ed, Horacio Sanchez, everyone, a virtual round of applause from our live audience. Thank you for that. Don't forget to follow the schoolhouse302.com for podcasts, blog posts, books to read, and more. We'll be back soon with another episode of Focus Ed. Until then, stay focused. And now a word from our sponsors. Hey, Joe, you know what leaders need these days? What's that, TJ? Sleep. A good night's rest. Self-care. We've heard it over and over and over again from our guests on the podcast that you can't pour from an empty cup. Leaders need sleep. One of the number one ways you can replenish yourself and lead better is a good night's sleep.
0: I hear you, but you know what? I'm so tired. I don't even like thinking about you know getting a good night's sleep. But you know, do tell how do we go about getting better sleep?
1: Well, I think that's part of your problem is you need a better bed. It always starts with the bed. That's why we recommend. GhostBed, our sponsor, with 30,000 plus five-star reviews. Their patented sleep and cooling technology gets you to sleep faster and longer than any other bed.
0: That's right. And their handcrafted mattresses come with a hundred and one-night at-home sleep trial and a two-times-the-industry-standard warranty. They're absolutely certain that their beds will work for you.
1: And with free shipping... Within 24 hours of your purchase, it's fantastic support from the company. And guess what? Just for being a listener at the Schoolhouse 302, you get 30% off with the use of our code SH302 at checkout. You go to ghostbed.com. You get some sleep so that you can lead better and grow faster. You use SH302 at checkout.
0: Absolutely. And last thing, even if you don't need a bed, you're thinking, wow, I would love to try out ghost bed, but I just bought a bed. Refer someone else for a bed at ghostbed.com. You'll get a hundred bucks for helping someone else get a good night's rest.
1: Wow. That's 30% off with SH302 code. At ghostbed.com, a hundred bucks for your referral. If you get somebody else a good night's sleep, better sleep for you, better leadership, ghostbed.com. You can't beat it, ghostbed.com.